0: This is the Meiji at One Hundred and Fifty podcast. I'm Tristan Gruno. My guest on this episode is Dr. David Howell, professor of Japanese history and chair of the Department of East Asian Languages and Civilizations at Harvard University. Dr. Howell is the author of *Capitalism from Within: Economy, Society, and the State in a Japanese Fishery*, published by the University of California Press in 1995 as well as Geographies of Identity in Nineteenth-Century Japan, published by Princeton University Press in 2005. Dr. Hell, thank you for being here.
1: Thank you, Tristan. It's great to be here.
0: A lot of your publications have looked at Japan in the 18th and 19th centuries. How does the Meiji Restoration appear in your research?
1: hmm Throughout my career, I've been interested in the process by which Japan went from a pre-industrial, mostly isolated from the West uh, country to a full player in the modern world, um, the first non-Western country to become a major industrial and military power. uh, So that certainly the process of transformation has been a constant fascination uh, in my research. But I've wanted to do so in a way that treats the period before 1868 uh, as being as important um, as the period afterwards. Uh, And then also to try to capture at what I guess we would now call a granular level, though when I started doing it, I didn't know that word yet, Um, a kind of lived experience of, of what it was for people to go through, that transformation. And I think probably even as dramatic a transformation as Japan saw over the course of the 19th century, as a matter of living through it day by day, year by year, of course it was much more gradual, much more natural, I think, in an odd kind of way. And so somehow trying to find a way to capture the, the drama, the utter transformation of Japan while at the same time seeing how it might have been for real people living in real time. Uh, And I really started, you know, I got interested in the idea of looking at Japan in the 19th century as a whole. Uh, When I was in graduate school, my uh, dissertation advisor, Marius Jensen, I think was the first person that I knew of uh, who advocated looking at the 19th century as a unit uh, I happened to be doing my PhD work at Princeton University at about the time that uh, Professor Jansen was editing uh, volume five of the Cambridge History of Japan, entitled The Nineteenth Century, uh, where the, he and his fellow contributors uh, tried to make a, a case for looking at the 19th century as a unit rather than uh, severing Japanese history at 1868 or thereabouts, and uh, treating it as they're two completely unrelated periods so I got interested in in general in that approach in graduate school, but I think in some ways it was actually the late 1980s, um, early 1990s, as uh, the Soviet order fell apart, the Berlin Wall came down, and the kind of commonsensical, not necessarily desirable, but, but commonsensical natural order of the world, as I had understood it in my life up until that period, was you know, the Soviet Union on one side and um, the U.S. and its allies on the other side sort of unraveled in a way that I think is still very difficult to explain. And even in the late 80s, you know, with the Solidarity Movement in Poland and the changes in in the Soviet Union, I don't think that I thought that the Soviet Union would collapse. That that I didn't think that that would be a thing until, you know, pretty much the time it happened. And so, and of course, I, I wasn't interested in that in, as a matter of research, but just you know as a citizen living his daily workaday life, watching the news, reading the newspapers, it made me think about how for people in Japan at the time, it might have been a similar kind of experience, that, that all kinds of stuff is going on. You know that big things are happening, but the idea that the old order might end And that a new order might come in probably I thought probably didn't really occur to people Uh, and so to try to capture that feeling and then after the old order fell apart how how the continuities of life after the old order rather than the, the changes but the continuities of life how those might have appeared and played out to people so just to give one very small example when I was working on my book, uh, Geographies of Identity in 19th Century Japan, I was reading quite a few things on the so called period of civilization and enlightenment, the Bumei Kaika, uh, especially the early 1870s, and how the organization of villages, the administration, administrative organization of rural villages, had been um, completely transformed instead of being pretty autonomous units that paid their taxes as a community and were mostly left alone by the higher authorities uh, unless you know so long as they paid their taxes and and the facade of social order was maintained they became much more centrally controlled but in the Bumme civilization enlightenment literature there were things like these dialogues that were written you fake dialogues written to try to explain what was going on to people at the time and uh, there's a dialogue between an old peasant man who sees the village headman go by and he calls him Nanushi-san, the, the Tokugawa period term for a village headman. And then the, the guy who's a much younger guy says, no 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 I'm not the Nanushi, now I'm the, the mayor. And the old guy, ah, okay, w- yeah whatever. <laughs> and uh, you know the younger man is, he's not the he was the Nanushi, now he's the mayor, he's wearing Western clothes, he's uh, not really so much the representative of the community as the kind of lowest level representative of the central government and so the dialogue is mostly actually talking about the things that have changed but the old guy doesn't doesn't really get it it, it appears and he just can't get beyond seeing the mayor as the old village headman and so reading things like that then although you know it was meant to be funny and and didactic at the same time for people trying to Understand the changes that were going on around them. It also seemed to me the kind of thing where there were probably actually a lot of really real people like that who, who sort of absorbed the changes or dealt with the changes, but but went on with their lives nonetheless. Even though, to us looking with the benefit of hindsight, would see this huge rupture that you know, starting today the world so the old world is over and the new world has begun. That's kind of a long-winded way of saying that in my work I've been trying to capture change and continuity as they coexist in people's lives.
0: As you were describing, looking at the 19th century as a, as a whole, yeah. is a good way to talk about those continuities and locate some of those antecedents of yeah. modernity that really set the stage for a lot of the modernization of the Meiji period. Yeah. With that in mind, is this whole idea of Meiji at 150, that, that, yeah. you know, the kind of umbrella of, of this uh, whole project, are we making too much of 1868?
1: Uh, so that's a good question. Um, the short answer is probably yes, that we are making a bit too much of it because the process of change was very uh, was gradual, and yet I think there's no doubt that without 1868, there is no 1871, 1877, other you know 1890, the 1889, the other sorts of uh, landmark dates that you might might think of. Certainly the the symbolism of the shogun abdicating and the emperor nominally taking over rule of Japan is very important. People saw it as a very important milestone at the time, even if it took a a while for it to really register with them. And so in that sense, I think there's no doubt that 1868, that's the date I always choose in my own teaching, because although and you could make a case for other dates. You know, 1868 really is, it's big. And I think that I'll continue to, to use it, even if the effects weren't felt for much longer.
0: Yeah. One of my previous guests was Christina E., who's a literary scholar. Mm-hmm. And so I asked her about the same question, is 1868 a useful date? I mean, maybe we as historians tend to fetishize years, yeah. dates, whereas, people in other disciplines might look to other markers mm-hmm. of the advent of modernity, so to speak. And so it's talking about the types of literary devices that are used, other types of let's say the beginning of modern literature until the eighteen eighties or so. Right. But I guess it really emphasizes, you know, looking at different things. Yeah. And come up with different answers.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's certainly true. I found doing my own archival research that because it's often the same men Um, in the post of village headman or or mayor or whatever Um, and the kinds of responsibilities that they had didn't change right away Uh, it is several years before the the format of documents, the kind of content of documents um, really changes noticeably uh, or the calligraphy changes noticeably in the Tokugawa period uh, people wrote with the kind of standardized Style of calligraphy, so there too. I mean, one could argue that eighteen sixty eight isn't such a dramatic moment. Yet at the same time, um, the way that the the new order sort of seeps in, even though the forms of the documents, and maybe even the the attitude of the man writing the documents is the same. The contents are changing, and the changes become more obvious and more dramatic later on. But they really do start in more or less in 1868. Mm -hmm. I've also done research on the Ainu people of Hokkaido. And I was in the archives actually last, I guess it was last year, looking at how the major restoration may have been received by the Ainu. And I I don't really have an answer to that so much, but I do have, I did come across a copy of an announcement that was made read to all Ainu communities. Apparently it was supposed to be read to all Ainu communities in Hokkaido and also in Sakhalin. And it's really interesting. The officials who wrote up the document said, okay, well, up until now, you've been under the control of the samurai. Now, a much more important offic- you know, authority has taken over. That's the emperor. Uh, and unlike the previous rulers, the emperor is benevolent. He cares about you. He'll be looking after you and, and in fact, to commemorate this change. We're giving you these gifts of tobacco and sake and other commodities. And so a new era, in that case, is literally beginning now that you are subjects of the emperor. And though in their case, too, I think the, the material changes in Aini Lives probably didn't really begin for a few more years, but still as a marker of, of an announcement of change, at least the, the document is very dramatic, How whether it was received with the same drama or not, I'm not sure.
0: Yeah, I think we do look, maybe fetishize 1868 as a year too much, and maybe at the risk of conflating the Meiji Restoration with all of the changes that occurred during the Meiji period. But there is still kind of pointing back to 1868. All of those reforms are done, you could say, in the spirit of of 1868. The Charter Oath gets put out, and that kind of sets the tone for the rest of the period. And So all of the modernization, reforms of customs process of state formation that is carried on after 1868 like you said without 1868 there is no 1871 yeah. there's no
1: 1877 yeah. 1889 I think there the um, I mean certainly you've sort of hit on one of the classic problems of writing history of the 19th century that the changes of the Meiji period were without a doubt revolutionary but the coup d'etat itself, doesn't seem revolutionary to us as historians. Perhaps the men who who installed the emperor thought that what they were doing was revolutionary in a way, but on its own, it doesn't seem like a revolutionary moment. And yet, you know, I think even the fact that they changed the fundamental, know, as soon as they took control, they, they implemented changes that, that changed the fundamental logic that underlay politics and sort of institutions in Japan at the time. So, although probably they didn't really foresee the extent of the changes that they would eventually preside over, there were things that sort of had to change. So, I've I've always been interested in the social status system and the institutions surrounding the social status system uh, in the Tokugawa period, and then the way that they fell apart uh, in the Meiji period and. My understanding of the way that the Tokugawa system worked is that it was basically a set of institutions designed to ensure the military preparedness of the regime. And so it was military government that the different obligations of members of different status groups were conceived in terms of helping the Tokugawa state marshal men and materiel and weapons and horses, all that, uh, for... The purposes of making war, even though the country was at peace for most of the time, and the military, ostensibly military purposes of the obligations fulfilled by different uh, status groups quickly lost any kind of direct and obvious connection to the military. But still, the idea of a government based on military preparedness that people, social groups, have an obligation to provide services or labor that helps ensure that preparedness in exchange for the benevolent rule of the shogun or his proxies. Uh, I think still, as an ideology, was very much there. And so if you get rid of the shogun, and at that moment it may just be a coup d'etat, that you don't want a shogun anymore, you want to put a, a figurehead emperor into place. But even that act meant that the logic of all the institutions of the state somehow contributing to the military preparedness of the Tokugawa house falls apart, even if the Tokugawa, because the Tokugawa house is no longer in control. And the logic of imperial rule is not the logic of maintaining military preparedness. It's a different kind of logic. And so, although it took a while and it was very difficult, a difficult process, the samurai as a class sort of lost their institutional reason to be Relationship between the peasantry and the state also changed because of the way that instead of self-governing peasant villages paying their taxes, you know, fulfilling their feudal, you know, their feudal, I'll use that with scare quotes, but their, their obligations to the state uh, as a community, then they became individual subjects of the emperor paying taxes to the emperor so that the imperial state can rule over the people. And I think if you go down the line, all the different status groups, basically lost their purpose in 1868, even if no one involved at the time saw it or intended it to be that way.
0: Speaking of the changing relationship between the peasant farmers and the state, in my classes, I always illustrate how central the emperor system came Mm -hmm. in the Meiji period with two quotations. Mm -hmm. One's from a peasant farmer in 1868 who says, oh, I've heard that the emperor is going to be reinstated. Yeah. I wonder what the emperor is like. I I wonder if he wears red robes and wears a crown like you see on the the Kyogen, you know, it's stages yeah, in, yeah. in Kyoto. It really illustrates that the the emperor for most people was somebody who lived off in Kyoto. Yeah. Really had no position in their lives yeah. whatsoever. Maybe you heard a poem by him every once in it once in a while. In 1881, after an imperial procession goes through the village, there's there's a recording or an account of of how the peasants would go try to collect all of the pebbles that the emperor's carriage had passed over. Because they thought, you know, this would bring prosperity because they were so lucky.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: I mean, that really illustrates how these reforms that the state introduced and this idea of bringing the emperor down from the clouds and showing him to the people and trying to construct a state around him, how successful that really was and how much the position of the emperor changed for the average Japanese yeah, person. Yeah, yeah. You had mentioned, you know, how the restoration might look from Hokkaido, and especially mm-hmm. from the Ainu you yeah. know, the population. Can Can you offer a, a few more examples on that?
1: Okay, so when the emperor goes to Hokkaido, he is put— well, his Ainu subjects are put on display for him, and, and I suppose, in a sense, he's uh, made visible to them as well. And there's a kind of, there's a really interesting thing that occurs. So just as in 1868 there was a, uh, a grant of, of money and goods to all I knew, apparently. Um, there was another grant when the imperial procession came to Hokkaido. But I calculated the amount, and it comes out to well under one yen per person. Okay. So it's you know, purely symbolic and it's certainly purely nominal. So then it made me think that that there's that kind of tension there, where the the Meiji state wants the Ainu to see themselves as subjects of the emperor, and maybe to sort of in, you know incorporate the emperor into their worldview, and and of course feel themselves uh, a part of a broader national Japanese national community. But at the same time, there's no denying that the Ainu really weren't that important to the Meiji state's project. Uh, by the time the emperor goes to Hokkaido, Japanese sovereignty over the island of Hokkaido is pretty secure, so that the idea of sort of making the Ainu feel Japanese so that the Russians won't come and take over uh, Hokkaido has mostly faded. I mean, of course, there's still there's Sakhalin, the Kurils. There are reasons to be worried about, about the Russians, but the Ainu, I think, have lost their role as important symbols of Japanese sovereignty there. So in a sense, then it's a kind of half-heartedness, I think, which may—I don't (laughs) know—may I haven't really thought about this, but may or may not apply more broadly throughout Japanese society. I'm not sure. That certainly the idea of getting people to feel themselves connected to the emperor. You know that anecdote that you had about people sort of eagerly collecting the the pebbles that his carriage passed over is really striking and you know, I've heard other similar sorts of stories and then you know the imperial portraits in schools and all of that sort of thing uh, and the imperial processions around the country but at the same time I wonder how how the emperor versus other state institutions is a way of, of making people feel part of the that interaction I was going to say that I'm a bit wary of latching on to the emperor as opposed to other institutions like the military or the school system because of a sense of of a reluctance to, to actually use resources to, to follow through on projects to reorient the Japanese people's lives at that level of, of custom and practice. For example, in the early 1870s, there was uh, a brief attack on superstition, quote-unquote. Uh, so there were attempts to prohibit the bon, bon obon, uh, like bonodori and things like that. and Because they were superstitious, they were backward. Um, they were Buddhist, and it's part of the attack on Buddhism. So there were prohibitions and maybe a little bit of enforcement, but then that, they sort of stopped doing that pretty quickly. And other examples like that. So... That, if the Meiji government were really all in and that the getting to ordinary people were really the most important thing, I'm surprised they didn't actually spend more money on it, mm-hmm. uh, but rather l- left it to a combination of, to maybe popular religion, but also other institutions like the military and the schools. But then if you ask me what they might have done otherwise, I'm not quite, I'm not quite sure about that.
0: and yeah. maybe continue to do so. So, when you're teaching this, what kinds of themes do you use? What, how do you approach it as a topic?
1: Yeah. So, um, are you thinking about the the 1868 per se, or the the broader like Meiji changes? Uh,
0: that's the big question. Oh, right? okay. That's <laughs> okay. Yes.
1: So, when I teach the Meiji Restoration, I um, first look at the the years leading up to 1868, and address the question of well, a bunch of questions but one is the question of inevitability or you know when when was the handwriting on the wall when was the beginning of the end uh, and i say that one can make a case with the benefit of hindsight that uh, the temple famine and and changes in the political economy that began much earlier but became maybe quite evident in the 1830s and 40s it's the beginning of a period of incre- increasing stress on the system. Not dooming it, but at least uh, a sign of stress. But at the same time, I, I think that probably it wasn't until 1866 that the collapse of the Tokugawa regime was really inevitable. I, I think the failure of the second Choshu expedition, when the, the shogunate just couldn't rally people to do its bidding, was the moment in which it became obvious that the Tokugawa regime just didn't have the authority anymore, lost legitimacy. But up until that point, I argued to my students that uh, nothing was inevitable. Um, Looking at the period after 1868, I talk about themes including resistance to the New Order, the way that, but at the same time the way that Uh, even quite radical changes could be presented as or interpreted as being signs of continuity with the past. So that when I talk about the so-called period of civilization and enlightenment, I make the point that no one was against enlightenment. Kaika was the term that was used most. Everyone's in favor of it. No one's against Kaika, but it was such a a flexible term that they could advocate for whatever they were advocating for and, and say that that's an example of kaika. So in thinking about, say, men's hairstyles, men are encouraged to cut their hair in the early 1870s. Some people, not surprisingly, interpret it as changing from Japanese to Western-style hair, uh, hairstyles, but uh, conservative um, advocates of kaika could say, no, 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 it's not Western, it's just going back to ancient Japanese practice, and so that you can be a good imperial loyalist, and it, um, and somebody who thinks of the Meiji changes as going back to the past and still cut your hair. And it might actually look very much like the guy next to you who's doing it because he thinks that Japan is going to em- embrace Western-style modernity. Uh, so the kind of the flexibility um, mm-hmm. of interpretation um, but because everybody was in favor of, say, Kaika, uh, it did, it it provided a kind of um, impetus for moving away from, in fact, moving away from the practices of the immediate past, and that's the other thing I always emphasize that even though people you know, resisted many people resisted the changes even people who were in favor of radical change often disagreed quite uh, vehemently about what those changes ought to be how they ought to be implemented you don't see anyone saying let's bring the shogun back let's go back to the old order and that the kind of the finality of the end of the tokugawa order and and even even men who wanted to keep their samurai privileges We're still not talking about going back to the old political order. And so that's another theme that I emphasize. And then connected to that, I also often say that Japan was very lucky that the Tokugawa regime fell so quickly and so cleanly. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, when you look at, say, China, you know, from somebody born in the year of the first opium war, it could more or less have died of old age by the time the 1911 revolution occurs. During this period when the Qing was forever on the verge of collapse. Uh, And yet the Qing was was so incredibly resilient, right? It it survived a 20-year war that was the deadliest war in all of human history up until that point, the Taiping Rebellion, and still kept on going. And whatever problems China may have had are sort of reflective of the strength and the resilience of the old order, I think. I mean, in a way, right? If the right answer is to become more like the Western powers, then that explains why China didn't change so quickly. Because the Qing was strong and resilient, the Tokugawa was not strong or resilient. I mean, it it lasted a long time, but once once that like the the linchpin was taken out, the whole edifice came down pretty quickly. So no one's looking back. Mm-hmm. And then, although now uh, historians have the Meiji period, um, especially now that the sesquicentennial is coming up, do emphasize the the violence and the bloodshed mm-hmm. and the and the and the deaths of the Bushin War. Still, you know, compared to other big ticket revolutionary moments in modern history, it's still pretty pretty short, relatively bloodless.
0: Like you were saying, the Meiji period may have instituted revolutionary changes to japanese society politics yeah. culture everything the meiji coup d'etat itself wasn't very revolutionary it's no it's no storing of the bastille it's no, no. french revolution no. for example but there was like you mentioned there's some bloodshed in the Bushin rebellion yeah and it, actually i think my my students actually are fascinated by that because there's such this idea that the meiji restoration was a bloodless revolution yeah. where everyone was Everyone must have been on board, because they saw how clearly the writing was written on the wall, where if Japan wants to stay independent, it's going to have to open up. And, but then you point out, well, there were you know, the, the Battle of Ueno Hill, where people holding out you know, Battle of Hakodate, people holding yeah, out even up yeah. until 1869. Yeah, so.
1: yeah. Yeah, so I, I think um, when I talk about that in my classes, I say that on the one hand, yeah, by this time, I mean, even the people uh, fighting in Tohoku against the, the so-called Imperial Army were not doing so uh, on behalf of the Tokugawa House, but um, and they too realized that big changes were in- inevitable, but they were more concerned about who might be directing those big changes. So in that sense, everybody sort of realizes that the old order is over and the new order is coming, but they're not sure that they want the men from Satsuma and Choshu to be in the driver's seat. So there's that there are kind of political disputes, you know, even as thousands and thousands of people are dying. Another thing, though, about the the bloodless revolution is that it's also partly a projection backward from the late nineteenth and twentieth centuries. You know, as you know, there's been some really interesting work done recently. Um, Hiraku Shimoda and um, Michael Wirt and others have written on um, the fate of the losers in the Meiji Restoration, and um, the process of rehabilitating people from the Aissu domain and other Tohoku domains, or the Tokugawa shogunate itself. In the – especially the 1890s, the first decade of the 20th century, um, as the – like the 50th anniversary coming up in in 1908 – or, I'm sorry, 1918. you know, by 1918, and it's been long enough so that many of the principals are dead or very old, but their children are still very much alive. And so a kind of a moment to take stock, to recall, but also to argue that, you know, we were all fighting for Japan and that, that we've all actually been imperial loyalists the whole time, uh, that there were no bad guys. It took a while, and, but, you know, a lot of the 1890s was, the whole project was to say that, for the losers to say that, that, that we were fighting for Japan, that we weren't, Mm -hmm. we weren't disloyal.
0: And, And like you said, a lot of the, the resistance to the regime wasn't necessarily yearning to reinstall
1: no, yeah. the
0: previous system, but yeah. it, like you said, it had, it had to do with who was going to be driving the ship, so right. to speak. Right, and, and I think that's also what you see in the same samurai rebellions in the 1870s, yep. the popular rights movement in the 1880s, yep. where it's all of these, this question of how much popular involvement is there going to be in the new government? Yes. Uh,
1: yeah.
0: Of course, the, uh, since we're in Canada, the great <laughs> Canadian historian of Japan, E. H. Yep. Norman, called it a a failed revolution for that very reason, is that there is this uh, attempt to create a more democratic regime that then gets forestalled by an autocratic Meiji government. I don't know if we would go that far. Yeah,
1: Yeah. Well, one of the things that I find really interesting about that kind of um, issue is that uh, if you look at the kinds of people, kinds of commoners who got involved in the um, imperial loyalist movement in the 1860s. They are demographically very similar to the kinds of, of commoners in the countryside who got involved in the freedom and popular rights movement in the 1870s and 80s. Um, you know, they're captured in uh, Shimazaki Toson's novel, great novel, Before the Dawn, which sort of takes um, the story from the Restoration period up through the the Freedom and Popular Rights movement, um, and uh, anyway, so it's you know very similar types of people, um, community leaders, you know, village headmen types, or well-to-do peasant types, um, and I think for them, when they were talking about democracy, um, uh, or actually, let me go back to their maybe their fathers who were uh, imperial loyalists. I think they saw themselves that their, their ambition for their imperial loyalism was to be part of the project of creating a new order, that they had maybe lost faith in the old order, but they saw themselves as um, people who should be part of building something new. They wanted to be involved in building something new. And as community leaders, they were sort of used to being in that position. Uh, and so uh, many of them got involved with things like Hirata nativism and um, the idea of uh, imperial loyalism. Uh, and then after the major restoration, um, although they they find that many of the slogans that uh, the young radicals who helped to overthrow the, the Tokugawa regime were using, uh, you know, Son no Jo-yi, um revered the emperor, Expel the barbarian, that kind of thing, were very similar, I think that the logic behind them was actually quite different. And so the um, leaders of the Meiji, early Meiji regime, paid a lot of lip service to uh, the old imperial loyalists, the nativist types, um, making the the Ministry of Rights the hi- highest um, uh, ministry for a while. And then it grad- very quickly gets downgraded. Mm-hmm. But they weren't really on board with the ideology behind it. Um, and so I think many of the... the men and women mostly men but some women who had been involved in um the loyalist movement in the f- 60s uh, came to understand or came to feel betrayed that they were going to be part of this new wonderful new project but actually they get sort of shunted aside and maybe the people who were creating the new regime weren't really interested in having them participate at all uh, and so some of them become embittered reactionaries, like um, Matsuo Taseko and uh, Anne Walthall's uh, wonderful book, The um, Weak Body of a Useless Woman. But then others, um, or maybe the sons of these others, then get attracted to the Freedom and Popular Rights Movement, which is all about being part of this nation building project. So the nation building project of the Hirata nativists is utterly different. like hundred and eighty degrees different from the nation building project of the freedom and popular rights movement. But they're very similar in the sense of of men in the countryside who are used to being community leaders wanting to feel that they're um empowered to be part of this new nation building project. Uh, and so I think there there's that kind of similar longing. And it's a that's why I would uh, disagree with E.H. Norman, all, all due respect, that um, that for them, it, I don't think it ever really was about democracy. Right. I mean, democracy for them, but not yeah. democracy for anybody other than them. Um, so so I agree with him that, that they wanted to be part of this nation-building project. Um, but I also think that, in a way, the Meiji state does figure out a way to sort of co-opt them Um and so that by the time you know, the 19th century is coming to an end, it's probably, Japan is probably about as, it's not very democratic, but it's probably about as democratic as these guys actually wanted it to be. So in that sense, it's not a suppressed revolution at all. It's a, uh, a successful co-optation yeah. of people who were willing to be co-opted.
0: podcast is hosted by Tristan Gruno at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. This podcast would not be possible without the cooperation of the UBC Center for Japanese Research and the technical assistance of the UBC Faculty of Arts, ISIT. Find out more about the Meiji at 150 project, including the Meiji at 150 lecture series, digital teaching resource, and workshop series by visiting our website, meijiat150.arts.ubc.ca.